Welcome to the Energetics Exchange podcast, conversations with energy and climate experts. Please note that the information and commentary in this podcast is of a general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular individual or business. Listeners should not rely upon the content in this podcast without first seeking advice from a professional. Welcome to Energetics Podcast, conversations with climate and energy experts. I'd like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. Here in Adelaide, I particularly acknowledge the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains and pay my respects to all elders past, present and emerging. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. I'm Sally Cook, Principal Consultant at Energetics and Head of our Strategy and Policy Team. So let's dive straight into today's topic. In 2017, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD, issued a set of recommendations to increase the understanding of climate-related risks and opportunities by organisations, improve the quality and level of disclosure, and ultimately allow financial markets to price climate-related risk more accurately. Their recommendations are centred around four pillars, governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets. This governance podcast is the first in our four-part series on the TCFD pillars. When looking at the TCFD recommendations, did you mentally tick the governance boxes and move on? Governance is generally well established in most organisations and isn't really thought about deeply until it fails. So how can you get the best outcomes from your governance structures? Joining me today is my colleague, Olivia Kemba, Principal Consultant with Energetics, and our guest, governance and risk management expert, Susan Staples. Today, we will discuss why governance is important, what good governance looks like, external stakeholder expectations, what happens when governance fails, and how you can work effectively with the governance structure in your organisation. Firstly, what is governance and what does good governance look like, Susan? Uh, So thanks, Sally. I think you're right. Uh, Governance is often overlooked and it's often a bit invisible to organisations, and that's partly because it's something that's done inherently in an organisation. I mean, if you think about the derivation of the word being to govern, you sort of get a bit of a mixed picture of what that involves. It's structures, it's processes for administration, overseeing the operational decision-making environment, um, policies and procedures, etc. But um, we've got accountability, we've got transparency, management of risk. There's a whole bucket of um, topics and words that come to mind when you think about what governance is. But I think fundamentally, corporate governance is really a set of rules, um, structures, processes that are used to direct and control an organisation that is essential to its sustainability over the longer term. So at a high level, governance really involves avoiding a bit of anarchy, I suppose. (laughs) Um, And what does that look like? It's about putting in place those systems and processes to understand what decisions need to be made, but also how they're going to be made and having those structures in place that are clear and, and, and that people understand really well so that there's a lot of transparency in what that looks like. Um, and there's no surprises in terms of um, how a decision is made and, and a, a, an outcome achieved. But there's also an oversight process in there as well and making sure that those agreed actions and those decisions that have been put in place are having the desired effect and that their outcomes are being achieved, you're achieving your strategic objectives and so on. And doing this in, a, in an ethical, legal and socially acceptable manner is, often, is one thing that's becoming more and more important in the governance space. I mean, good governance is a little bit nebulous. It's a little bit hard to define um, because it often sounds like a bunch of motherhood statements. It's like, oh, we're going to have effective structures and systems. We're going to be transparent in our decision making. 
we're going to comply with relevant regulations and we're going to be accountable, set the tone, effectively manage risk and ensure that we've got a positive culture, which are difficult things to really define in a practical way. So I think sometimes it's often useful to think about governance in terms of um, defining it in terms of when it's failed. So it's important um, to think about what good governance looks like when you think about what a failure looks like is what I'm trying to say. So, you know, we've seen a lot of governance failures in many of the sectors. Financial sector was probably one of the most obvious with the Royal Commission. Um, and, you know, we've seen that through examples of poor conduct. We've seen examples of that through uh, decisions that didn't take into account the full remit of information. And essentially what it's shown is that governance is being highlighted where businesses have behaved badly. Um, Volkswagen was another one where the diesel dupe, where the misled the market and the, the board were essentially held accountable for um, the, the conduct or the misconduct there. We had Enron, we had BP and Horizon issue. We had Rio Tinto recently. Um, in the Jukan Gorge. So there's been major impacts for those entities because they failed to comply with the regulations. They misunderstood the risks or they underestimated the downside of a decision. So I think the governance failures here relate to those with the ultimate decision-making and oversight authority really failing to address or identify the issues um, and the consequences that it might have for their business. Um, I think to sum up in terms of your question about what does good governance look like, I'll kind of boil it down to three things that I have heard through the traps over the years and it's about um, it requires a lot of those charged with governance responsibilities which are directors and management but it requires them to have oversight of the policies, the practices and the performance of the organisation, insight into the risks and the opportunities that are available for the business and foresight to proactively identify and respond to emerging issues and to build this into their decision-making structures and their operating environment to ensure that it's sustainable and viable into the future. Thanks, Susan. I think that's really interesting, uh, particularly your points around how it's not just a board activity, but it's, a, it's an activity that engages the whole of the organisation and the oversight, insight and foresight, I think, are really interesting points to think about. There's also an aspect, I guess, of board governance that goes to the specific management of climate change risk. So why is governance important to the management of climate related risk and what do we need to ensure that um, our governance practices have to effectively manage climate related risk? So I think that um, there's two ways in which governance is important for the management of climate related risk. One is that of course you can't actually manage your climate related risk if your governance structures and processes aren't aligned with that objective. So um, if your rules and processes and relationships that direct the direct your company aren't um, heading in the direction of climate risk mitigation, then any efforts you make outside of those are effectively um, rendered irrelevant. But I think the other important part of it is that actually governance requirements under the law, in fact, mandate climate risk management. And so we've seen in the last few years that um, building on sections of the Corporations Act uh, that require company directors to act with care and diligence and act in good faith in the best interests of the company that um, and this was a the seminal opinion that came out from Noel Hutley SC in 2016 that that effectively requires company directors to understand the climate risks that their companies might face because it's considered a foreseeable risk it's actually part of directors duties to understand 
what those climate risks are to the extent that they intersect with the interests of the company if they require if that means that they need to be managed manage them and also disclose them and so we're seeing now more expectations around the disclosure requirements uh, coming through from APRA and ASIC and AESX. And this really got another shot in the arm in 2017, of course, when the TCFD framework came out and made governance one of the four key pillars. Uh, I think another interesting aspect was the REST super case, where one of the REST super members filed suit against the fund claiming that it was violating the Corporations Act because it wasn't providing information about how it was dealing with climate change risk. And this came up to the courts and in the end it was settled before trial, but basically because REST admitted that it needed to do all of this and it made a number of commitments around decarbonisation and how it would structure climate risk management processes through investment managers and advisors and what it would disclose. So governance is an enabler of climate risk management and it's also and climate risk management is a necessary part of governance. So these things are completely interrelated. And and as is risk, you know, that's all about risk management. So if you think it, about it as a very um, high level, you've got the governance framework, which is responsible for your risk management framework, which is responsible for ensuring that you are foreseeing and managing risk. Um, and as you've said, Olivia, there's a lot of um, legal opinions and things that have, have been evolving legally that were really driving that as a, a risk that directors are required to manage because it is foreseeable and it is material to the organisation. I think the other, um, the other development in that space is the ASX corporate governance principles and recommendations. And over the years, they've certainly evolved to be, you know, standards of better practice for governance, whether you're listed or not listed. But essentially, there's um, uh, the principles there talk about what good governance looks like for an organisation. And the most recent iteration in 2019 actually calls out TCFD and climate risk as a material risk that organisations need to be reporting on um, because it is foreseeable and it has a significant impact on the, the value of the organisation from an investor's perspective. So the ASX guidance is there to, to ensure that organisations keep the market informed about issues that might impact on the, the value of the entity. And 7.4 actually recommends that all listed entities do align with the TCFD or at least acknowledge that climate risk is a material and a foreseeable risk. So it does need to be addressed. And I think it just goes to the point that um, we're seeing a lot of a lot of drivers really um, indicating that climate risk is significant and it is something that you need to have considered at the very sort of top levels of an organisation. And I think the other point was that APRA, RBA and ASIC are also pushing um, for greater uh, consideration of climate risk by all organisations. And it's just it's just fundamental now in terms of being able to and having to, to think about that as a significant part of your business and um, the risk management framework. Absolutely. And I think all of those regulator requirements and we're seeing it also come through the mandatory TCFD reporting in New Zealand as well, about the increasing expectation of regulators and other stakeholders is really driving um, a stronger uptake of the TCFD recommendations than we might otherwise see. What, what are stakeholders expecting from companies in terms of their climate-related governance and what's the current state of practice? I think that expectations have been rising very rapidly and will continue to rise really rapidly. And at the same time, we're seeing the current state of practice improving quite fast as well, although there's quite a, um, a range 
in, in terms of what, what companies are doing. And so just thinking about investors as a, as a, as a key stakeholder group that um, we've got most visibility of what they expect. But I think your point about the, the regulators are also um, thinking through what it is that they are expecting and how they can um, require that. And that process will come to more fruition, I think, over the next few years as APRA puts out its prudential practice guide. Uh, which has been a bit delayed by COVID, but setting aside the regulators for a moment and focusing on the investors as a, as a key user of um, TCFD information and key uh, considerers of climate risk, and that probably should specify more sort of institutional investors here, um, obviously very influential in Australia and particularly important because they've got a long-term outlook um, and so climate risk is, is directly relevant to them. In terms of what they want companies to provide in governance, uh, we've seen that uh, there's sort of been reasonably good disclosure to date of the structures that companies have set up um, and the processes. And now the next step, what the investors have said that they're interested in, I'm thinking here of the IGCC, which put out a report uh, looking specifically at what investors want from the TCFD, um, is demonstration of expertise or what Susan calls climate literacy among management and uh, directors. And basically that's the requirement to actually show that you do understand what it is you're talking about when you're talking about climate risk, because it's a big complicated area of risk. It's, quite, it's also quite fast moving in its own right. And it's not necessarily an area of information that board members are going to be automatically familiar with. So showing that you've been building that expertise, that sort of capacity to understand climate risk across your management and board members is becoming really important. And then another important aspect is how do you tie this with your performance management? So how do you ensure that um, the incentive structure that the company has is actually including climate risk management as well? It's not just a kind of side issue. So those are the two things that we've seen uh, really rapid development of recently. I think the stakeholder expectations that um, Olivia's talked to around investors and some of the regulators are, are obviously real and they're growing. Um, but I think there's also an expectation from shareholders in general around remuneration, as, as Olivia mentioned, like how are we encouraging um, and rewarding um, board directors and executives around uh, their performance in relation to management of climate risk. Uh, so I think that's an emerging and evolving area that no one's really nailed yet. It's a difficult area to to get across, but it's certainly something that's getting a lot of um, interest at the AGMs. But I think also from a customer perspective, um, there's a lot that's going on and, and society in general, there's a lot that's going on in terms of expectation. Um, if you look at Royal Commissions and you look at the, I guess, the publicity that sort of surrounds them in, in say, the financial services sector is a really good example. Um, but governance comes up as a major issue um, in all of those contexts, and it's about the information not being received by boards, boards not getting the right level of oversight on, on the risks that are within their business, the risks that are going to have a substantial impact on the sustainability of the business, um, the financial and non-financial costs and how those are being considered. Um, and I also think just reputationally, um, people are making, they're voting with their, their feet, I guess, that, you know, staff and customers may move around on the basis of 
how organisations are uh, performing as corporate citizens, which is an old language, but it's I think it's a it's an ethical and moral question that's getting a lot more gravitas in in organisations, even just from a competitive competitive advantage perspective. If you're trying to um, uh, have I guess a competitive advantage over one of your peers, then uh, your performance in climate risk management and other non-financial areas is a real can be a really big game changer for some organisations. I think that um, some of the responses that we're seeing from companies as well, in these areas, in terms of trying to um, trying to respond to these fast emerging expectations, have been really interesting. So we've seen really rapid um, adoption of net zero targets. Um, a lot of focus on um, commitments to be aligned with the Paris Agreement. We're seeing experiments in um, remuneration in terms of sort of experimental incentive linked targets. And one of the, I, I want to mention one of the top 10 most useful elements of the TCFD as um, identified by the, the, the annual status report that the TCFD itself actually puts out every year um, is focus of on board consideration of climate-related issues for major capital expenditures, acquisitions, and divestitures, so that integration of climate into the big decisions. And so companies that, like the leading companies have been really, I think in the last year or so even, just like there's been some step changes in how companies have tried to integrate these things. There's been a, a, an interesting variety in how they, how they do that. And I don't know that it's clear what stakeholders most prefer at this point, and stakeholders, of course, being a very broad group. But I think we're definitely entering another phase of uh, really interesting experimentation on this on this next level. And we'll, we'll see some more clarity over the next few years about what, what key stakeholders do find sort of substantial as opposed to maybe, say, just picking net zero commitments, what, what versions of those they find substantial versus those that they consider to be um, greenwashing. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because if you think about governance in terms of, you know, having to understand the broader environment within which you're operating so that you can make an informed decision about what's going to be a sustainable option for your business, whether it's an investment decision or compliance even. Um, you know, you look around, there's there's all of the, the bushfires, there's a lot of natural um, disasters that are, you know, really elevating the the issue of climate risk for uh, broader society. It's something that organisations are now picking up on because they've had real experience of this. And so thinking about, well, from a governance perspective, what do we need to do to be more proactive about this environment that's changing around us? Um, it's getting ahead of some of the policy or anticipating that whilst we don't have a national commitment to um, the Paris Agreement. We have um, a lot happening globally that could be driving a change down the track. So if we don't act now, what, what are we going to be faced with down, down the track? Um, so from a governance perspective, it's, it's, re it's requiring you to kind of lift up and think about the bigger picture, think about the external environment that's that you're operating in and those stakeholder in, in, um, stakeholders that are not necessarily directly within your sphere of uh, sphere of influence might actually have influence over your decisions in the longer term. So I, I guess it's just an important consideration for that foresight element of governance to really think about what's coming down the track um, and how do you build that into your strategy development, into your risk management processes, into your oversight and performance processes as well. 
That's a really excellent and very interesting point. So like the conversation around experimentation and stakeholder expectations, and I think it's not it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all for all organisations. Yeah. You talked about getting all the information ready and communicating it up to the board, but you also need to understand how do you build that climate-related expertise of the climate literacy that we were speaking about, and how can you demonstrate that you've effectively built that to an external audience? I think the key thing to note here is that, you know, there is a, there's a it's a very technical area, some of the climate sort of scenario modelling and uh, it can be overwhelming and that there's just so much information out there. But the key thing to note is that directors and executives don't have to be experts, but they do have to, um, they do have to have a working knowledge of the issues. So just like you don't have to be uh, an accountant to be on a board, you don't have to be a financial specialist, you have to be financially literate. Um, in the same way that you need to have a level of climate literacy. And I think that, I mean, that applies to any element of a business, but you've got to have a working knowledge of some of the issues that are going to impact on the organisation. And this is a material issue. This is a material issue for many organisations and you really need to understand um, what those impacts and and risks and opportunities could be. So, I guess it means understanding the high-level scenarios in terms of the impacts on the business, the changing expectations of stakeholders, like what is that going to mean for your decision-making? Is it going to change anything in terms of your investments? Even, um, you know, thinking about the insurability of of your assets, um, you just have to be able to be able to pull those um, pieces together. And it also means inherently that there's a, a level of acceptance of the reality of climate change. And I think some boards haven't quite got to that space yet, um, or some directors perhaps. But in terms of your question around building the knowledge and how do you build the expertise of the board, I think it's really, it comes down to fundamentally understanding where everyone is at, um, what's the baseline literacy, what are directors and executives currently know and understand about climate risk. And once you've got that in train, you can then do a bit of a gap analysis against what you think we should know. And which I was describing before, it's a, it's a high level sort of climate literacy about what the issues are and how they're going to impact the business. So once you've got that gap analysis done, I guess, um, it's, it's around how you address that. And that can be simply things around um, board and executive briefings. We could have some external SMEs come into any of those meetings or, or internal specialists who might come and present to the board or the exec at a regular or irregular basis. You would make sure that you have some refresher training as any part of director training or um, uh, development, you, you would include climate related issues on that program. Um, I think you can also do even site visits and sort of understand some of the physical impacts potentially after an event or or in anticipation of, um, of an issue that might impact on an asset or an investment. You can go and have a look at where it's where it's positioned and you know very basic things like that but from a I guess a process perspective one of the key things is just getting the climate uh, risks and issues on the agenda making sure they're included in the discussion Um, and that's really simple that's just putting it as an agenda item on your risk committee it's it's including a a climate risk categorization uh, element or uh, attribute in some of your project investment criteria um, or business case analyses and then and making sure that you align that to your risk appetite make sure your risk appetite statement's got 
a climate related um, uh, aspect to it so that it then gets incorporated into the decision making processes within the organisation. Um, getting some climate related KPIs on the performance dashboards, just the, the intention being to elevate the climate information that's getting to the board and then ensuring that the board is asking questions. It's the job to ask questions and to challenge. So being able to ask questions that can go back to the business to say, well, how is this going to impact on our strategy? Can you give us a little bit more insight into the, the scenarios and what they mean for our strategic objectives? In terms of formal training, I look, there's probably not around oh, a huge amount around uh, climate risk that is formalised in terms of qualifications, but you know there's certainly um, people that you can get in who have incredible expertise to to give those updates and briefings. I think one of the really important things is to make it practical. So you can do war games, you can do scenario planning, you can think about what would be the impact of this scenario on our strategy um, during the strategy development phase um, that all boards and executives would go through. So making sure that you include climate risk um, in those scenarios as part of that strategy development. They're the sort of basic, simple ways of upskilling the board and executive. Demonstrating that is, is really trying to articulate that in your TCFD disclosures. I think the TCFD requires you to talk about the expertise and the skills of your board and directors. It's very easy to say that, yes, our board has, um, has those skills, but demonstrating it through talking about some of the activities that have been undertaken to fill the gaps is really important. And I think being as transparent and open as you can about where those needs are and what you're going to do about them if you haven't if you haven't addressed it yet, what do you plan to do about it in the future just to show that you have ac accepted that there's a gap there and that, that the market is you know, aware of the activities that you plan to take to, to get to, I guess, fill that gap? I want to make a generalisation. I want you both to tell me if this is fair or not. But basically, my sense is that because Australian companies went through the carbon pricing period, there's a very high level of familiarity with most things to do with emissions, emissions management, emissions reduction policy, which is a great starting point, um, but also has has some sort of downsides where potentially people think they are they they may they know they know more than they do, or rather that um, they know how it went last time, and so that set an expectation about how policy risk, for example, might play out in the future. Um, at the same time, in terms of physical risk, there are some companies that have been dealing with uh, physical climate risks or, or extreme weather events as a matter of course, and have got a lot of internal capacity to deal with that and to adjust that for climate risk, but aren't but most companies aren't in that position. And even those that are unnecessarily aware of the degree of difference which they would face under climate scenarios. So as a, a Overall, I think where people are more comfortable with transition risk than physical risk, um, but that com that comfort itself is a, is a bit of a source of risk because there's ways in which transition risk is actually changing very, very fast. And so part of um, maintaining expertise is probably also developing a sense of comfort with the fact that this is an issue which there's going to need to be sort of ongoing 
development of over time because what we're doing is working with um, scientific advances, uh, with technological advances, with policy experimentation, and there's a lot happening overseas as well that you have to try and keep track of. There's a lot of happening within specific sectors. Uh, if you're a company that covers a lot of sectors, there are many, many, many things to keep uh, abreast of. And um, translating that up to a level which is relevant to, say, a board member, is it's not easy, but um, it's something. And then I think the other part of that is how do you persuade them that it's worth the effort? Yeah, and I think your your point there, Olivia, around the fact that it is constantly changing means that it can't be just a one-off thing that you do and you put on the shelf, that directors really need to, and executives really need to keep on top of those issues because they are evolving and they will have an impact in relation to expectations, in relation to regulation, in relation to the risks that are being faced by the organisation. So I think, um, you know, it, it, that's a, it's an important point to note that it's not a static thing and it's evolving quickly and you've got to remain on top of the issues. But again, you don't have to be an expert. You just have to understand what's changing and how it could um, at a macro level influence your organisation and then deep dive into areas where where it will have a significant, where you will have a significant exposure. Um, but you've got to kind of understand those levers and those risks and opportunities at a, at a high level to be able to do that deep dive analysis. I think it's also an important consideration that when you when you make uh, a disclosure, you don't necessarily have to have like there's no right disclosure. The disclosure is a right disclosure is one that's accurate and transparent and is telling the, the full story. Um, I think that people get a bit nervous about saying, well, we can't say that because we haven't done enough. Um, whereas actually, I think you if you can. Or, or that we've we've focused our efforts in an area that others don't agree with. And I think um, the point of doing the analysis and having the governance and oversight around the risks and, and the performance of the organisation is so that you can say, we've done the analysis and we understand where our exposures are and this is why we've taken this action. Um, so it's really creating that defensible position in your disclosure so that people understand why you've come to the decision that you've come to and rather than putting yourself on the back foot and saying, well, we did it just because we thought we had to, you can say we did it because we've done the analysis and we understand where we're exposed and therefore we've prioritised our resources and our actions into a specific area and haven't addressed another area which, which someone might feel is more important. But at least you've got that defensible position to say that um, you understand the issues and you know how it's going to impact on your business and therefore this, we have taken this particular course of action. Yeah, absolutely. Those are really relevant comments. One of the challenges as well with engaging with boards and senior executives is that you often have to uh, give them a 15 minute slot in an already packed agenda to try and um, take them through something that's very complex. And so if you haven't been doing that ongoing um, engagement and the building of capacity with your board and your executives, sometimes that can be a really, um, really challenging uh, thing to kind of uh, bring to them without the prior context. And following on from that, we've seen examples uh, like that one where governance processes aren't necessarily used effectively. What are the causes of failure in climate governance and what, what can happen when, um, when the governance processes in the organisation aren't well leveraged? So I was thinking about some examples of what those failures might be. And um, I think some that we see fairly frequently are um, where, where the climate risk sort of work or responsibilities are relatively siloed within a company or where the work is done at a level, but then 
excessive caution perhaps at levels above that mean that a lot of it doesn't actually make it out into disclosure or potentially that um, there are some sort of areas of such sensitivity that um, the, the work on climate research has to tiptoe around them. But I wonder if there are any, that, uh, any others that struck you too. I think fundamentally, if you think about what some of the failures are, it, it's essentially that there's no understanding of the issue or uh, and that's because the information hasn't been um, accepted or that the issue itself hasn't been accepted by the, the board. Um, so I think there's varying levels of acceptance of climate risk and the reality of it and what it means for organisations. I think some have been pushed into um, responding from a regulatory perspective or from, a, a, I guess, a, a broader policy perspective. Some have been pushed into that. And then emissions is a good example where the uh, emissions intensive industries have had to uh, respond to a regulatory requirement. Um, I think failures in general tend to be that there's not... There's a disconnect between the sustainability team within an organisation who are working really hard to kind of address some of these issues that they've identified, but but that the board hasn't really been able to get access to that information, maybe because it's not in the risk the enterprise risk register. So it's not considered to be an organisational risk. It's considered to be an environmental risk that sits in the environmental team and hasn't escalated up to a material um level that the board would be interested in um, or that, um, you know, that there's a disconnect between uh, the information that's getting reported up. Um, so it's just not, it hasn't been built into the risk processes or the reporting processes within an organisation. So there's, there's a failure there in terms of the disconnect between, sometimes the disconnect between board and operations. I think there is also, as you've said, Olivia, a bit of a disconnect between, or a bit of a, an appetite issue perhaps in terms of what people are willing to disclose. Sometimes I feel there's a lot of great stuff that organisations are doing, but they're just not reporting on. So I think they might get um, an unfair representation in the market or it gets miscommunicated or misinterpreted by either stakeholders or by um, analysts uh, about what an organisation's doing. And it that sort of fundamentally can put organisations on the back foot if they're questioned um, because it's a bit like, why? what are you doing? Why haven't you told us about this? What have you got to hide? Which goes back to my point before about, you know, if you, if you can be a little bit confident and bold about some of the assumptions and the work that you've done and why you've taken a certain path, it gives you a more defensible position, I think. So um, I think the other thing in terms of failures, if you just think about some of the asset failures that have occurred out of um, natural disasters that have been driven by climate change, uh, I think it's just people really didn't understand and do the analysis and the scenario work to really understand what those impacts are and felt that perhaps it was something that's going to happen 10, 20 years from now when actually we're seeing the impacts of the of climate change today and we're seeing them more and more frequently. So, you know, it's really up to the urgency and a lot of organisations are trying to catch up um, catch up in terms of analysis and processes and risk mitigation. One of the things that came out of the Investor Group on Climate Change research was a, um, a recommendation by them that companies get much more comfortable disclosing um, negative outcomes in their scenarios rather than making, and, and, be, and, a, and a bit more detail around those, rather than making uh, the claim that they're resilient under every, under every, all of their scenarios and potentially all conceivable scenarios. Yep. But I just, 
I wonder whether there's we're putting a lot of emphasis on what companies need to do, but whether the stakeholders or the investors in, in that regard can can help a bit as well by making it safer to, to be um, more transparent in your disclosures because there's certainly a lot of caution about putting something out there. And I think that part of the part of the caution is probably justified because stakeholder expectations haven't been particularly clear yet. And also there, and often the literacy among, say, the investors is also being developed at the same time. So we're all we're all learning as we go. Yeah. And so what that means is that there is a great deal of caution about, say, putting out a scenario that has negative NPV. There's, there's a fear that you might be punished for it in some way, and it's not necessarily clear at the moment that you won't. Uh, so I think there's a bit of work to be done on both sides. But I'm just wondering what you think are the sort of the good reasons for caution and maybe the bad ones. Oh, look, I think the good reasons for caution are, you know, if you have um, an analysis that's not quite as fully formed as you would like, and so you'd like to do more work on the analysis to understand what that is, but then you can get into a situation where uh, best is the enemy of good, so you actually overanalyse it to the point where you don't do anything. Um, so I think... I think, um, you know, there's caution obviously in disclosure around making sure that you're not, you know, giving away some strategic advantage or competitive advantage if you're saying things that your competitors aren't or you're giving away a, a position that you don't want to give away. I think that's also, you know, or a vulnerability that you don't want to expose. I think that's, um, to your competitors, I think that's important, but you do need to be able to be transparent with your shareholders so um, you know your shareholders obviously need to know where the risks are in the business so they can make an informed decision. I think one useful aspect of that is also it's going to help make it easier over time like the yeah. technical tasks might become more complex but the the muscle memory that you develop within the organization as everyone just gets a bit more familiar with these things as these things get more embedded mean that you can develop as you go and that um, it's I, I, I mean, I'd be interested to hear what you guys think. From what I've seen, the ability of companies after the, just thinking of taking scenario analysis, for example, after one go with scenario analysis, you know, one, uh, after undertaking scenario analysis for the first time, that is often quite painful and hard and frustrating for a lot of people within the organisation. <laughs> um, there's a lot of uh, questioning of why are we actually doing that. Once they're doing second time the degree of sophistication that they can actually bring to the um to the analysis is hugely advanced and the value that they can get out of it is also hugely advanced and you know if you if you do it a third time you're going to be doing it at another level entirely yeah um it probably applies to a lot of other aspects around climate risk although maybe not necessarily quite so easily um because you might be dealing with um much more sort of rigid pre-existing structures but um the more you chip away, the more you the more you're building yourself a base for further progress. I think Christian before we um, finish, I like your point, Susan, on oversight, insight and foresight. And you talked about the development of capacity with your board so that they understand um, what they're receiving, um, making sure that they're assuming responsibility and champions for um, these climate-related risk issues um, in the exec, if you can. Um, understand your um, external landscape so it appears and the stakeholders are doing and really demonstrating the need and the value in the context that in context that resonates with your um, organisation. So whether that be a legal requirement, whether that be keeping up with peers or whether that be responding to stakeholder feedback. Thank you. The next discussion we'll have will be the second in this TCFD series on risk management. And as you can tell from this discussion, you can't have a 
discussion about governance without having a discussion about risk. <laughs> so that one will also be um, an interesting session. Thank you for joining us. Energetics Exchange Podcast. Conversations with energy and climate experts.